people forget the advantage of having a very long-term time horizon on the metrics or definition of success. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we're going to jump into the world of venture capital, sitting down with my long-term friend, Finn Barnes of First Round Capital. Finn, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm really happy to be here. It's great to see you, dude. Hey, always. Well, I want to start with the journey that's taking you from marketing basketball shoes to being one of the leading seed investors in the country. What led you into the world of venture capital? Yeah, I mean, the, the real answer there is... I, I went to business school after some time in the startup world and thought I would jump right back into starting another company. And, and the short version is, absent any good ideas of my own, I joined a venture capital firm. Um, and, and sort of what I mean by that is, you know, I, I, in business school, spent time with people in and around startups, people with ideas, and consulted with them, talked with them, thought about joining some teams, and just never found the thing that I was waking up every morning thinking about going to bed every night thinking about. And so absent that, didn't feel comfortable committing to a startup and found that the the very next best thing would be spending a lot of time with people who engage in partnering with and supporting startups. And so found the first round team and Josh, I went to business school in Philly and so so found found them and was lucky enough to have an internship over the summer and then to be able to join full time. Love it. So I want to dive into that first uh, experience with First Round because you joined and your title was Venture Apprentice. And that's now a title that you guys call the Chief of Staff, which is a really kind of, I think, unique position. Tell me a little bit more about that. And do you think that Chief of Staff is something that more and more businesses should actually use? Yeah, I do. I think the, the apprentice model broadly, I think, is something that more and more businesses should use. And, and someone who has a great process around the things they were asked to do by the institution and with great process over time comes great outcomes, um, but also comes really, really good pattern matching and understanding and depth around how to access, pick, win, and then support founders sort of across the board. And I think the same would be true in, in any business. If you imagine a junior marketer coming in and if, if ultimately promotion for that job is based on coming up with the snappy tagline that ends up you know, winning in, in the bake-off, if that person knows that, everything else they're asked to do to support the institutional creation of that tagline to win, if it's an agency, right, to, to win that bid, everything else they're asked to do in the support of that comes second to their own ambition and, and their desire to come up with the tagline themselves. And I think that you have these things in conflict and, and the probability that they, over the time that they're a junior person, learn how to craft taglines, how to participate effectively in brainstorm sessions, how to do all the small little things that you do actually have control over. They help you improve the odds that, that you create the tagline, that you strike, you know, you, you find that luck. Uh, you lose all of that because you're so focused on doing it yourself, right, versus helping the institution do it. And so I think I think that with the venture apprentice role, I was able to come in with, uh, because I had no personal desire to be an investor, 
right? At the time, I didn't want to be an investor. I wanted to learn more about startups. I wanted to learn how they're built. I wanted to be closer to the really amazing entrepreneurs that were building them. And so because I didn't have the desire to, to move up the ladder, I didn't care about the ladder, I focused on the small pieces of the job, the craft that you can actually learn that are replicable and that allow you to eventually become a strong investor. And I think the same would be true at, at any place where you're learning a craft or an art versus there's some programmatic way to do something or a science that, that you're applying to the, to the ultimate outcome. Yeah. So I want to double click on that concept of relationships that you talked about a few times. So you and I, Bill, uh, met crazy enough almost 15 years ago now when you were doing uh, the very first fitness game for the Xbox and PlayStation 2 with Yourself Fitness. Do you think enough business leaders really think about investing in relationships for the long term uh, to your point of learning that game? Yeah, I think it's hard. I think, I think probably the answer is no. Right? I think, well, yeah. So the answer is no. They don't. I think the reason, though, I think is the most interesting thing. I think people forget the advantage of having a very long-term time horizon on the metrics or definition of success. And I think that the, the longer term you can think, whether that's what's your time horizon for liquidity uh, on an investment or what is your uh, the time horizon on, on how you think about building your career or, or if you have an initiative, you know, how, how long is it before that's measured? And, and if you think about even just in the company perspective, what is you know, the best CEOs are always thinking about what's going to happen over the next 25 years, not over the next quarter. A right? quarter century is not, not you know, financial quarters. And I think that when, when you think about those relationships, the, they're formed around a near-term need. Right. So, so I reached out to you or you reached out to me. I forget how it worked, but around a near term need that we each had, right? uh, we needed distribution and notoriety and marketing for the game. And, and you needed a differentiated message or approach for your customer. And, and so I think there was a near term need that, that happened to be uh, symbiotic. Yep. Right. But then I think in the process of working together, you know, from my side anyway, like I, I always look back at that and I'm super grateful for not just the fact that we had the potential to partner and that ultimately there was a partnership and ultimately it was successful. And I think hopefully it was, you know, I think it was successful in your end and in, in, in our way, it was, it was a way to get on the map and became sort of this lighthouse partnership that then led to a partnership with McDonald's and some others. And because we were seen as someone who could work with companies at scale of P&G, et cetera. But from our side, the, the biggest gift that you gave us, and this is, I think, part of why I think we've been friends for 15 years, is the transparency around the process, the idea of what was it that you wanted out of it, very specifically, what did you think you could give to us, and equally important, what you could not yep, give to us, exactly. right? And I think that that transparency and willingness to educate someone who had started a video game company in Portland, Oregon, to the way that P&G marketing worked and the way decisions were made and the values and the metrics of success, that level of transparency and willingness to, to educate was something that I'm always grateful for. And so I think that that, that made me think, oh, this, this could be a long-term relationship. This is a person who takes, has an approach that I believe two things about. One, uh, I respect it. So this is someone I want to spend time with. And then two, I think that if I, and maybe this is, this is naive, but if I respect the way someone operates, many, many other people will, and this is someone who's likely to be successful. And so with that, I made the decision at the time 
to invest in that relationship outside of the specific partnership and to have to, to recalibrate my time horizon on the success of that relationship and the return on the investment of time in developing it. And I think that that, um, if I think of my own career, that's, I've had a probably a lower, a lower bar on what it takes to recalibrate and think long-term than the average. And I think that's paid off tremendously over time. Uh, Jim Collins talks about who luck, you know, and he talks about, and, and I think that that willingness to invest ahead and have a very long-term time horizon on relationships has led in my own life to a lot of who luck around the people that I am now friends with and my mentors and, and so forth. And I think, yeah, lots of people could do much more of that with, uh, with very little cost. Yeah. Yeah. It's the seeds we plant early in our career are the ones that really pay dividends much, much later on. And not only just that they pay dividends much later on, but that you plant those seeds consistently over time with a certain way of approaching relationships. Then I think you never know, you know, I can't, I can't count how many people, you know, that you've introduced me to. And I, and I don't know about all the others where maybe you've said nice things that neither of us know the spark that led to something good for me, but that it sort of trickled through in that way. And so, so I think, yeah, people underinvest in, in those relationships, but I think it's because of this, you know, as life gets faster and faster and you have these near term KPIs and metrics, I think it's very easy to lose sight of the appropriate time horizon to, to think through, uh, you know, the return on the investment in the relationship. Yeah, without doubt. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So speaking of those professional relationships, you know, you've talked a lot about the role that startup advisors play in startups, and you give a lot of advice to not just your portfolio, but companies you meet with. What advice do you give to both sides, to the founders and to the advisors as you think about the relationships there? Mm-hmm. I think the most important thing is from the advisor side is to really listen and, and listen from a perspective of, of knowing, knowing your role. Right. You say like, you know, stay in your lane. (laughs) And as an advisor, I think people, the big mistake they make is they assume either a level of control or engagement or influence that is not appropriate, given the fact that they're an advisor, not in the company. And so I think that the when when I talk to advisors, I, I encourage them to keep in mind that it's the founder's company and and they're going to make the decision and that your job becomes helping them make their best decision rather than telling them what to do. And I think the way you do that is you really listen. And then I think from the founder side, the number one thing is to be as transparent as you possibly can. And I think if you have an advisor who the more transparent you are, the worse the advice Right, or the way the the worse the meeting goes, then that's just not a good advisor. Right, the more transparent you are, the better the advice should get. 
the more impactful the advice should be and the more you should, should want to engage in that relationship. And so I think yeah, for, for advisors, it's to listen and, and to provide advice on things you know about and to, to be willing to say, I'm not the best person to provide that advice. I, I don't know much about this area, but I can, I can go deep in this, this other thing. Um, and then for, um, for founders, I think it's really about being as transparent as you can. But if someone is not helpful, being willing to cut off that advisory relationship and understand that just like an employee with you know, stock options that are vesting and so forth, if it's not working out, then you need to end that, that, that piece of the relationship. So you started your career actually on the marketing and creative side, working at And One, growing that business from 15 million to north of 200 million dollars. You know, today when you work with brands and companies and startups, what experience you take from your days of doing the And One mixtapes and everything else in that cultural zeitgeist and apply it forward to today? Yeah, so I think there's the biggest thing is is what do you say no to? All right, so And One I think was great at we knew exactly who we were trying to talk to. We knew exactly what they cared about, and we knew how to create emotional resonance with that audience. And I think that the primary way we did that was we, we deeply understood them, but we also said no to a lot of things. Right? We said no to initially advertising against the mixtape or selling the mixtape. We said, we said no to only doing uh, performance shoes, and we did the whole to chill in line. We said yes to signing certain athletes when nobody else would sign them because we knew they would resonate. And so in doing that and being very, very focused on a very specific customer, we created deep emotional resonance. And then I think that had ripple effects that allowed the brand to really grow. But it really started with, with sort of saying no to, to lots of things that our competition had to say yes to because their audience was, was broader. So probably will uh, carry through on your answer of saying no to stuff. But, you know, you often say that one of your biggest jobs is really helping a founder to do their best work. So what have you learned is the best way an investor can do just that and help them do their best work? I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about with advisors a little bit. I think, I think you, you need to come to those conversations understanding that success for you as, as an investor, even as an advisor, is not the very best decision as you've defined it, but it is to bring out the founder's very best decision as they've defined it with, with everything that they know and to provide them the appropriate context, the, the push against the way they've defined what is the best outcome. Sometimes it's a, you know, every founder is different. Sometimes it's someone just wants to talk and it's more of a therapy session. Other times they want to debate and argument and you have to figure out the actual medium that brings out their best for the given moment. But ultimately, if you maintain the belief that you have very, very little control over the outcome of the investment, right, of the company, because that has to do with the market and timing and competition and pricing and partnerships and all these things that you really have no control over. But what you do have control over is the quality of the partnership with that founder. And if you can focus on success there, defined by being able to bring out their best, being able to create a relationship where you can be totally transparent and honest about how you feel and how you're thinking about something and encourage them to reflect that back so that they are being open and honest about what they're thinking and what they're doing and why. Then I think what you create is the the drive for the advisor or the investor is to put that founder in the position to win rather than measuring 
themselves against the victory or not. And so you create amazing partnerships. And I think over a long period of time, the sum total of those amazing partnerships will be amazing investment outcomes. But I think that if you focused on the outcomes, you would never have a good process and therefore you wouldn't be able to bring out the best in founders. I love that. So over a career, you've worked for you know, a brand that really challenged the footwear industry and changed what that is. Today, you're trying to invest in founders that are doing that same thing across a whole bunch of different industries. On the flip side, you've got a bunch of the Fortune 500 that is trying to figure out what to do in this new environment of change happening faster, new threads from emergent industries. How do you think it's best for a big company to have their finger on that pulse of what change is going on and how they should be responding? Yeah, I think I think it's hard for a big company to think we need to understand innovation or what's happening in the startup ecosystem because there's always people starting companies across every industry and and touching what a big company is doing from the way they operate on the back end and their FP&A all the way through to the way they're engaging their customer and, and new mediums of communication and so and everything in between right so so i think that big companies really need to think through what are the critical areas of our product and the way we're touching our customer or of our cost structure and our internal operations what are the key levers within that that drive value creation for our shareholders and then once you boil that down to understand the key levers where if something could improve by 1%, you know, it improves your bottom line by 10%, then go look for startups in those specific areas. And I think that you should find that you can spend, you can spend time understanding their business, understanding their product without asking for any time from the founders or the investors themselves. And then with that, with that understanding and appreciation for what those companies are trying to do, potentially reaching out to some of their customers to talk to them. Why did they adopt? You know, what, what was the problem that this company is solving for them? Uh, and then eventually probably engaging with the teams at those companies, either as a customer or potential partner, um, and also sometimes with the investors who might have a deeper understanding of the long-term vision where this company is going and, and why it matters. But I think being willing to do the work to get very specific, both about your own business as a large company and then also about the business that the startup is building and getting much more granular rather than what I see a lot of is people sort of say, I want to understand you know, X area of innovation. Let me go to the top and talk to the people that seem to be leading that space whether that's investors or journalists or academics versus going down to the, the front lines and really understanding, you know, what people are, are trying to build and what motivated them to build that based on their understanding of the customer. I think it comes from, you know, I always think of very big companies as sort of the way you make uh, progress on getting something done inside of a big company is, you know, you start at the very top and then you get shunted off down to ultimately the decision maker. But it's impossible if you get a no from that decision maker, it's impossible to go back up one level and then come down, down a different leg of the decision tree, right? Whereas in the startup and innovation ecosystem, I think actually going to the front, right, going right to the people who are and to the products that are really starting to drive some of this change and then bringing back that understanding is the most valuable way to, to really understand what is happening and who you should be spending time with and the areas that you should be paying attention to. Yeah, that's great advice. To 
when you're living at that nexus of change like you do, you have to have your finger on the pulse of where things are going. How do you think about your own personal development of not just as first round or as the venture capital fund, but you staying on top of things of where it's going so you can keep in that continuous beta mindset? Yes, I think the the number one source of learning is the founders that I get to meet every day. Yep. Right? They're they're doing things that you would have never thought of. They see the world in ways that you can't imagine. And so being able to spend time with founders is is one of the greatest gifts of this job and is the thing that keeps the learning curve really, really steep. And so I view the job as having two aspects. There's interviewing before we invest and there's coaching after we invest. And I've spent a ton of time working with coaches professional coaches for, uh, you know, business coaches, uh, basketball coaches, um, you know, and, and trying to understand how people think about that craft of coaching. And then I've done the same thing on the interviewing side and spent time with journalists, with recruiters, with great hiring managers to understand how they think about assessing talent and assessing ideas and understanding the narrative and, and the story behind the person that they're sitting and talking to. And in, in that work on, on both sides, uh, understanding the process that people go through the, as they practice the craft of coaching or they practice the craft of interviewing, I think I've gotten much better at both. And so in that process of coaching the founders I already work with, I'm always learning because I find a way for them to be much more open and honest about exactly what's going on, the things they're seeing in the industry, the way they're thinking about managing their company, leading, how they're balancing their personal lives, et cetera. Um, and then on the interviewing side, the same thing, people that I have, it's not as deep a relationship as the founders I work with, but when I think about interviewing a founder uh, or, or an expert around an industry, the ability to draw out more context than just sort of answers to very specific set of questions is something that keeps that learning curve very steep. So I think those, those two things, making learning an active piece of the entire job versus carving out a specific amount of time to read some set of websites or blog posts or, or listen to certain podcasts has, has meant that uh, I still do those things. But they're secondary to the primary research of sitting with people and, and just understanding the way they view the world. Oh, that's a great way to look at it. Well, Finn, it's always a pleasure to sit down. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk uh, about predicting turn. So thank you. Yeah, of course. No, thank you for having me. And, and uh, you know, thanks for the initial partnership that, that led to sitting in this room today. For sure. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.